The Spin-Off Podcast Network. At Zed, we're all about moving with the times. And now it's time to be part of the climate change solution and move on from fossil fuels. As a company providing fuel to people all over the country, we also know we have a real opportunity to lead that change. We're committed to keeping Aotearoa moving by providing the right energy for everyone. We believe that innovation in fuel and how it's used can make a huge difference to our planet. Find out more at z.co.nz. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. The Investment Fix podcast. Tune in today. Should we do it anyway? Should we see? We'll like, just, we just knock, we'll just knock just, it out. We'll just carry on. Just carry on with our lives. We'll just bash it out now, edit it down to a tight like five to eight minutes. Can you, yeah. here, can you, um, when we put this one out, can you play it on 1.2 speed or something? Just oh, to make good it sound idea. a bit more. Yeah, I'll see what I can do. Make us feel a little bit more alive. Mm, that's mm-hmm. a great idea. Yeah. Okay. But we've, we've got to speak particularly deeply so that it doesn't mm. like, affect the, oh, yes. the, the authoritative tone and register of our voices. Okay. Mm-hmm. No my hide my Katie Fakaroma my quirky gone by lunchtime the puff daddy of the podcasting oscars today we're talking about act and co-governance about the unexpected exit of Louisa Wall about the Solomons in China uh, but first Annabelle Lee Mather Ben Thomas we'll talk about the no longer so novel coronavirus we'll say thank you very much to Tiahi Butler for making this work actually I should say somebody friend of mine who was on another of the spin-offs Empire of Podcasts, The mm. Fold, good mm. podcast about mm. the media. Never heard it. With Duncan yeah. Greaves. Good. Yeah. You should, you should, it is good. You should have a listen. Um, not, not as good Such as this. Such a greaser, good. Ben. Uh, anyway, that she said to me that she really enjoyed doing the podcast, which seemed nice, and then she said, because she got to talk to Tiahe Butler, which, and then she went <laughs> on to say, who is my favourite thing about Gone by Lunchtime? Oh. Which is very nice, very nice about... I hear, and deservedly so. It's grateful to hear, I hear. But, but I, I think I it's less, less of praise for me than it is a diss against yourself and Duncan. And Duncan and Annabelle and, and Annabelle ben. ben. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's kind of notable. I saw we got a lot of good feedback for that Simon Bridges episode, last the last one we did. Right. And apparently it was people's favourite one since the one we did with Chloe Swarbrick. We've only done two. Yeah, and a, a pair, yeah, apparently the ones... They like it when... That are... That, they like it when there's less of us. Less of us and and more, yeah, yeah. Sort of diluted. Yeah. Ben, <laughs> diluted. It's, 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 it's kind of, kind of like when people tell me that I look really good in hats, right? And I'm like, you know, and I'm and, and a like, mask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have, you, have you tried a motorcycle helmet? <laughs> Tiahe was doing a gig the other day and they recognised them from Gone By Lunchtime. The audio engineer recognised me and said that he listens to Gone By Lunchtime. Shout out Mm. to Jordan from Native Audio. Mm. And he also said that Tiahe was his favourite thing about Gone By Lunchtime. He might have said that. He might have said that. (laughs) Yeah, this is is like the audio engineering community. He's like, like, I just listen. I listen for the production. I listen for the crisp, like, editing. (laughs) It's like a techie one. He's like, I, I put in my my gold plated ox cable <laughs> with my like eight hundred dollar headphones, and I just I just enjoy the ambience. I mean, should we just leave you to it? Yeah, we can. <laughs> we'll go and grab a cup of tea. I can't putting <laughs> the stop top on. I'm putting the stop top on. places go. Listen, um, uh, uh, thanks to spinoff members, the greatest of all the people 
in uh, this blue dot of a planet. Thank you very much for keeping us going. It's two years since we went into lockdown, and it seemed like about the 100th, 200th sort of big podium speech that Jacinda Ardern had had, had to give. Um, and this time it was trying to kind of, well, not finish it, maybe sort of the beginning of the end of it, the announcement that capacity limits would go up to 200, that it was uh, as of this weekend coming up. We're talking today, I should say, when we're talking today, we're talking today on Wednesday, the 30th of March. Uh, as of, I think it's April 4th, 5th. Anyway, next week, goodbye vaccine passes. You don't need to use them anymore. Goodbye QR codes. Uh, mandates. Welcome our unvaccinated brethren. Yes. See you See you at the cafe. Yes. Um, vaccine mandates, mostly gone save for, I think, health Healthcare, corrections, border workers, rest homes. So, you know, like we're kind of it's getting there. And yet, yesterday, Ben, there were, I think it was 34 COVID people dying with COVID. There were... Like a higher death rate per capita than the US. Right, yeah. And the, you look at the, you know, our numbers going up, 850 people in hospital, 17,000 cases a day, roughly. And... It's still very much with us. It's never been with us more. <laughs> it's really, really, really with us. It is It is always in our hearts, potentially spreading to our lungs and our brains. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that's necessarily physiologically accurate, but uh, yes. Yeah, like, there is this interesting sort of um, kind of rhetorical, not trick, but... Um, pose, which is like, well, you know, once we've hit the peak, then we can start uh, you know, reeling back the restrictions. Mm. It's like, yeah, I, look, I'm no mathematical genius, but I've, I've seen like these graphs, right? And I'm pretty sure the peak means like that's, it's, we're halfway. <laughs> like it's, right. you know, if, if we're looking at talking about a normal distribution, which we're not really, because on the uh, left-hand side of the graph, there is a period where there's no coronavirus, whereas on the mm. right-hand side, there will there's just an endless tale of coronavirus. Yes, as far and as it can plateaus tell. out as like, you look at the numbers in Australia and so on, which are going up again. And um, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, it, it doesn't go back down to the ocean. Well, I'm not like a mathematical genius like Ben, but I am really good at Wordle. And what I know mm. is that um, that. We it's far from over, and what makes it kind of worse for us at the moment is that we're heading into winter, mm. which is when we know the virus really ramps up. So we're only like halfway up the crest of the wave, about to body slam down the other side and then get dunked, and we'll probably have less protections than ever before heading into winter. But I mean, the, th- well, the, winter, no, no, of, I, the winter of discontent and snotty hankies. I mean, the thinking is, you know, that everyone who's not infected yet will get infected before winter, they then they'll then have their three months of basically antibody immunity. <sighs> um, you know, it sort of tides us through. The you know, the, it's really been interesting looking at the government's changed rhetoric. You know, where you actually look at the you know the the ads which say, "Oh, now it's safer to remove some restrictions." And I assume that the argument there is that, you know, there is there is a level of sort of, you know, that, you know, vaunted herd immunity from people who've gotten the virus, got high levels of boosting, and in Auckland in particular, numbers are actually coming down quite a lot. So your chances of getting the virus are less. But we've seen, you know, the Prime Minister, uh, the Finance Minister at least, the COVID Response Minister, in interviews saying, oh, you know, going out for coffee or a drink or something, that's safe. 
which uh, not technically true in the epidemiological sense that a professional epidemiologist like me would say, but but this idea that, you know, look, we, we do have to recede and there's a lot of talk of living with the virus. And I thought the Prime Minister's speech was really interesting on those lines because it was specifically done on the day, two years to the day since the first hard lockdown was called. Mm. It was written very much as a sort of George Bush on the aircraft carrier mission accomplished kind of speech. We're opening up, look at all the hard work we've done, look at what we've been through. There were these really scripted, you know, made for TV and headlines lines like, you know, we're bloody tired, you know. We're, you know to be fair, George goes, Bush was sort of 10 minutes into an invasion of Iraq versus yeah. two years into a pandemic. No, sure. But what, what what I mean is, you know, it was it was staged as, and the speech was written as a sort of, you know, we can be proud of what we've done. Now we're on to the next phase. We're opening up, you know, look, let's, you know, pat on the back sort of thing. But the delivery didn't match that at all. It was I thought it was the flattest and least energetic I've ever seen Ardern give a major address. It's it, she was sort of hurrying through, um, almost like you know fire safety instructions at a town hall meeting or something. And and I think that's that sort of betrayed the fact that the government is just desperate to sort of shuffle on from COVID-19 and say, this is now just business as usual. This mm. is just the world we live in. Don't come to us with your problems. <laughs> I really felt <laughs> like it was more like reflective vibes than trying to to hurry through it per se and an opportunity to remind people of um, the stuff that she hadn't agreed with and then had to do like mandates and all of that stuff and, you mm. know, a bit of a history lesson about what happened. Just in terms of the whole living with COVID thing, I think what's going to be really interesting going forward is living with long COVID and how well equipped New Zealand is to do that. Like, how's ACC going to be dealing with long COVID? Like, if you get COVID at work, like you're an air hostess or a waitress or whatever, mm. like, uh, how many is... ACC like geared up to start processing long COVID, long hauler COVID claims and stuff. That's going to be the real interesting thing because it's easy to say it's time to live with COVID, but we're not thinking about like how well prepared is the system in terms of like additional sick leave support, resourcing, all of that sort of stuff when it comes to living with what can be the devastating effects of long COVID. And I feel like that's not a conversation that we're really having enough well, if we look, if 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 we approach it with the same level of zeal and efficacy as we approach living with long rheumatic fever, or long asthma, or yeah. long, you know, then yeah. I, I think we can look forward to a sunny future. <laughs> one of the one of the sort of challenges, I suppose, that the prime minister faced in delivering that speech last week was not wanting to give the impression that this was in some way the result of the occupation, riot, convoy, call mm. it what you will, mm. um, which which I have no reason to doubt. And there are others who think maybe it was more to do with the poll, but, you know, she was very clear that it was to do with the timing, which had always been set out that once we were down what you both so adeptly mathematically described as the downward part of the mountain, that we would be going towards that. And it's interesting to see <laughs> that in light of the, basically the end of the mandates. Yes, it's not completely the end of the mandates, but most of them, and signalling the end of the mandates, the many thousands of people who gathered to protest calling for the end of the mandates are now 
promising to gather <laughs> at the end of this week to protest. I'm not sure exactly what, and and if reading reading their their comms, neither entirely are they. But if we if we thought, and I'm not suggesting that anyone really did, that this change would mean the end of that movement, we're very wrong. People just like doing activities. Oh yeah, um, it's a bit of extracurricular. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Days out. They, yeah, look. Some they're, people, found, they're lonely people that have found a brotherhood and and yeah. now they just want to vibe it out together. No doubt. No doubt there's a, some solidarity in, in that group and maybe that's a natural human thing. It's, it, it, is, it is, I mean, I've been gone to probably spent too much time reading these exchanges that it is healthy for a human being. But maybe they'll go back to, like, worrying about chemtrails and maybe they'll start, like, protesting against Christopher Luxon and, like, questioning what was in the chemtrails that Air New Zealand was mm. spraying all over over the country when he was the CEO. Like, who knows what fabulously ridiculous conspiracy theory a, a will co- become the next... Co- coalition of viewpoints. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think the ironclad rule with it is... Because, um, you, you know, the, the new Clark Gayford rumours have sort of cropped up and judging judging on the sort of history of this, basically anything that you say as a joke to parody their views now will be what they believe is a firm article yeah, of faith in two right. years' time. Mm, yeah. so. That's the... That's the, that's the exponential curve <laughs> yeah. as well, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Just, um, yeah. Look, let's um, let's talk about ACT, David Seymour, co-governance. David Seymour kind of cracked open the cap on that particular subject, calling for a referendum on the issue and saying that would be a bottom line for any government negotiations after the next election. That in turn prompted accusations of race baiting. Uh, there were calls even from Māori Party and um, Matthew Tukaki for boycotts of funders of the ACT Party. Annabelle, you had David Seymour on your television programme, The Hui, this week. Mahinganagi mm-hmm. uh, Forbes interviewed him. What did we learn from that? I think what we learnt from that is that David would rather spend millions and millions of dollars forking out on on treaty settlements for treaty breaches going forward than trying to create a system um, that might help to avoid treaty breaches in the first place, Hmm. um, which is essentially what co-governance would ultimately aim to do as well as provide plurality of voice and you know, a rethink of values. Um, like, for example, if you look at places where there are co-governance, like Tiaroa River, Settlement, Lakes, Waikato, those sorts of places, we see that um, when you have go co-governance with Māori, that you see a shift in some of the values. So you see things like conservation and sustainability coming to the fore, which is ultimately a good thing. And far from Māori being like sticks in the mud that get in the way of like farmers and stuff because Māori through the treaty settlement process actually have real deep interest in agriculture and stuff. Mm. They look, they, you know, sort of create models that are that are good for business and good for kaitiakitanga. So I guess really it's just playing into a deep-seat fear that a lot of Pākehā have about what power sharing with Māori might look like. But actually... 
it's kind of like the marriage equality bill, like everyone that was super anti-marriage equality because they thought mm. somehow it diminishes the manner of their own marriage somehow. Mm. And actually, however many years later, we know that it hasn't and it's actually, mm. it's actually a good thing. Interesting. It was, it was an interesting interview, I thought. Um, and, you know, we've seen ACT leaders in the past uh, in interviews, including I think one where Jamie White didn't 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 know what Fano Water was. Was that your program? That was Native Affairs. Was, yeah, he didn't so, know what Fano so, Water so, was. Here's the other thing about co governance though, just in terms oh, yeah, of yeah, Fano yeah, Order, yeah. is that things like Fano Order, they're kinda of like and treaty settlements, they're like bottom of the cliff stuff. Like Maori don't want to spend all their time having to go to court to fight over treaty breaches. Like a lot of the the discussion around this is around three waters, but if you want to look at a, a real example of what's happening with water in Aotearoa, you look at what happened in the Hawke's Bay. There's an iwi down there whose river has completely dried up. It is literally bone dry. This is a river that they swam and ate out of, bathed in, all of that. Mm. And the farmer up the road has been allowed to dam the river and give it to all of his mates that grow grapes and stuff while the Māori down the road, before it finally got reticulated years later, would spend weeks over summer not being able to drink water, flush their toilets, all of that stuff, and their river's gone. So if you had a bit of co-governance, and I'm not saying three rivers is perfect at all, but like when you have a plurality of voice... When you have different people at the table, just like when you have things like more women on boards, that can only be a good thing. Yeah, I mean, a lot of uh, what a lot of what gets discussed in terms of like the the history of co governance happened when I was working for Finlayson in Parliament, mm. because a lot of it developed as these kind of bespoke arrangements and treaty settlements, usually over natural resources. Like, in, uh, in one sense, you really are. The the father, oh, the king of, <laughs> of co-governance. <laughs> you? you are the co-governor. Sorry, sorry, um, this is an important point. It's a point of uh, Yeah, and, and so and, and Seymour actually made this distinction in his speech. I I actually hurriedly read Seymour's speech because I think somebody wanted to get me on the radio to talk about it last week, and um, I and it was actually the the speech was actually really interesting compared to how it was reported like i mean obviously mm. it, was re- it was reported exactly as act wanted it reported mm. right which was mm. a referendum on co-governance what they were actually suggesting was basically a reheated version of this um referendum slash legislation that both ACT and New Zealand First have promoted at different Mm. times, basically removing the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi from New Zealand legislation. Um, Seymour's proposed bill is a little different where he just sort of talks about redefining what the principles are and saying the principles are that everyone's equal and nobody gets treated any differently. Mm. Um, but but it has the same effect. So it's not actually about co-governance in particular. It's actually just about removing the treaty from New Zealand law. Um, and, uh, I, yeah, again, like I think there's actually a lot of conceptual sort of fuzziness on what co-governance is. And, th- and this is part of the problem that the government has had, you know, when this hepua pua sort of shadow boxing yep. came up, is that co-governance, it doesn't, you know, if you'd say something is a co-governance arrangement, that doesn't actually necessarily tell you much about how it works. Mm. You know, there's all sorts of, there's myriad different ways of doing it over sort of, you know, natural resources. Annabelle's right. Like when you're talking about it sort of in a policy sense, 
um, you know, there was this buzzword a while ago in Wellington called co-design, which mm. was that you'd bring in the treaty partner to help actually design the policy f with you rather than just sort of doing consultation. And and part of the reason that you do that is because consultation can go on forever. You don't know if you've got the right people. Whereas if you're co-designing, you say, well, in a way you're actually outsourcing the consultation. You say, well, the treaty partner will do the consultation in amongst itself then they'll talk to us and we'll get a better outcome for, you know, what are pressing social economic policy issues, which is that Māori are at the bottom of the heap in pretty much every social indicator mm. in New Zealand and we do need to find a way to fix it. There's a few ways of doing it. One of them is devolution, which is not really co-governance That's and that's that sort of whānau ora model where you just give money to people to do things. And, you know, an actor actually... To fix problems that the system has created yeah, yeah, by the, being institutionally yeah. racist, like and, in yeah, health and stuff. Ab absolutely, yeah. Mm. And then the sort of evolution of that was that, you know, a lot of iwi providers, a lot of Māori groups sort of were like, well, we're kind of being treated like just contractors. Mm. You know, the government sort of, the government has created these problems or has allowed these problems to flourish as well as treaty breaches historically. Um, and then we are getting given, we're basically getting a contract with KPIs to fix it. But actually a lot of these KPIs are wrong. A lot of the box ticking is wrong. This isn't the right way to approach it. You know, the, the framework's too rigid. How about we get involved in the policy design? And so then you have more consultation at a policy level and then code, you know, co-governance as it's talked about in you know, some of these areas is sort of saying, well, actually, why don't we just, it's from the start, <laughs> let's just yes. involve the treaty partner yeah. so that we don't have to go through all of this rigmarole yeah. on every single yeah. policy, you know, and, and, and for, from a pragmatic point of view, it makes a lot of sense. And look, you should always examine it in the context of each individual instance, you know, mm. to see if that's the right solution. But, you know, this sort of blanket talk of co-governance as some sort of constitutional affront doesn't make mm. any sense. Mm. I mean, so some of the terms are so unclear as to be meaningless. You know, they talk about the, the proposed Māori Health Authority. That's not co-governance. That's two government departments. You know, Te Puni Kōkiri is a, is a Māori-centric, sort of Māori-issues-focused government department. It doesn't mean it's co-governance, the fact that it exists. It's a crown agency with a chief executive who's responsible to the Public Service Commission um, and, and, and has delivered... The, 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 the new Health think... NZ and the Māori Health Authority is an example of co-governance? No, absolutely They're not. They're two no. separate No, things. Māori Health Authority... So Health understand. New Zealand is going to be a, a, a crown agency which will run all of the health services mm. and policy. And then the Māori Health Authority will also be a crown agency with a board appointed by ministers, um, and 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 that and they will. But doesn't within a co-governance under a co-governance principle? No, no. no? Okay, co-governance principle would be. So you've got co-governance talks about basically the treaty partnership, right? You have the crown and you have Māori. Now there are Māori within I. the crown. Papua and Iwi. Yeah, so there, there are there are Māori within the crown. You know, Kelvin Davis is a Māori person who is also. A crown minister, but when he's acting as crown Māori relations minister, he's not he's not the treaty partner. He's the crown, and so co-governance would be you would have a board, and half of them would be elected by it would be appointed by iwi, and the crown wouldn't have any involvement in that. These six people would just turn up and say we were appointed by our people, and then they would they would have you know what's been called a veto over you know health health New Zealand strategy and planning. But the the proposed 
model here is just two government departments and both the CEs need to sign off a plan. Now, that, that happens in other areas around government. You know, you need two CEs to sign something off. Um, there's, it's not co-governance at all. I think when you think about co-governance, if we're going to have the big debate about co-governance, we need to think about what the alternatives are to co-governance because the Waitangi Tribunal has already found that Māori never ceded sovereignty, that we have to, that's that came out of the Ngāpuhi hearings, that we, we Māori didn't wake up one day and decide that they were tired of running their own country and could someone come along and do it for us. So that didn't happen. They maintain their sovereignty, their tenoranga, tiratanga, and their mana motuhake. So if you think of it from that respect, then perhaps the solution would be that you have a separate Māori parliament. Um, I imagine that most New Zealanders aren't really down with a separate Māori parliament, and therefore co-governance is actually quite a good um, elegant solution to that question, although I'm sure most Māori would probably prefer their own Māori parliament. So... I think if we have the debate about co-governance, we should really be looking at what all of the alternatives are to that. And Calvin Davis has acknowledged that that debate hasn't, or that conversation hasn't really happened sufficiently and mm. that it's go, there's going to be consultation, whatever form that takes in the months to come, and Willie Jackson is preparing the next step in the purpo, which itself came out of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, which was signed by National and so on and that. This is going to lead right into next year's election, mm. presumably. Mm. Are we up for that? Are we ready for that? I mean, it's it's such a difficult one, Oh, I just one, think right? it's real hard when you get politicians talking about this stuff because it just gets, like, hijacked and used as a fair, you know, a way of, like, fear-mongering and all of that sort of stuff. So I kind of feel like politicians aren't even really the ones that are qualified to, to be leading that debate. I, that I mean, it should be our leading, like constitutional lawyers and those kind of guys. Yeah, no, and yeah. Iwi, obviously. No, and we Iwi. need to keep public law academics as far away from <laughs> this as possible. Um, the... I mean, we've had, you know, the the, the key government actually as a... As a um, as part of an agreement with the Māori Party, uh, had a constitutional conversation. And it went on for a few years and they released a report which just had more stuff to think about. And their conclusion in the end was, say love <laughs> you know, what, what will be will be, you know, quesera, um, whatever. Um, and I feel like this will go the same kind of way. I don't think that the New Zealand political system, which is Westminster system, which is incrementalist by nature, is set up to have, you know, a public, you know, a discussion about big overarching constitutional framework change. I don't think that's what people want. Uh, that's what the electorate has. You know, that that was actually the, the one big change we've had was MMP, and that was actually the the public saying we don't want any more big wrenching change. You know, we, we we want things to be done incrementally and slowly. Um, I, I again, yeah, I think you're right in the sense that we you can't have these adult discussions about big picture stuff. And I think in a way that's fair because people can't really imagine what it would look like if it's too different from now. Instead, I think you know the way that that th these things happen, not just in terms of uh, uh, treaty stuff, but just just wider sort of discussions about the role of local government, about um, you know all sorts of things that you know very very loosely get grouped together as constitutional New Zealand stuff. Um, it happens incrementally. It happens case by case. Everything gets debated on its merits. 
and you know what you find is that over time things tend a certain way if they work and you know and, and I think that's probably the way that this will go and I think that's probably a good thing this is gone by lunchtime we'll be back in a hot minute ready to rediscover the joys of cycling with over 300 kilometers of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto Jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Let's talk about Lewis Wall. Uh, we had Simon Bridges suddenly announce his departure a couple of weeks ago, and we had Lewis Wall suddenly announce her departure this week on Tuesday, which is, um, according to my calculations, yesterday, it being Wednesday today. That was a surprise, wasn't it? Uh, there's a lot of backstory there. There's a lot of scuttlebutt around that you've heard, most of which I don't think is true, but it was mentioned in the release, which was issued from the Prime Minister's office. Not, yeah. not, not, not by the not by the Labour president, not by Louisa Wool herself, but by the by Prime Andrew Minister's Campbell. office. Mm. Said at the bottom, Louisa Wool will not be going, offering any more comments. You'll be issuing a valedictory speech on April fourteenth. There might be a few white knuckles. You sort of just like like to have been in the meeting where the text of that particular release was agreed. You know, mm. the, but 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 the of course Annabelle like an incredible record. Like the all the, like the, the 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 achievements that few politicians can boast over the course of mm. a career, where the marriage equality is the most famous of those. The private mm. members built she pushed through. There's also the safe spaces outside abortion clinics. There was making revenge porn illegal. It's pretty incredible CV there. Mm. There was the episode which was touched on in that release in the 2020 election candidate selection, where she was basically. I don't think it's putting it too strongly to say she was muscled out of mm. her candidacy in the Manudewa totally. crowbarred <laughs> um, <laughs> And then chiseled off. Lawyers were involved. And this is the stuff which it's you, you hear different versions of the story depending on who you talk to. But we know that lawyers were involved, that there were threats of court action, and that she then was offered a high place on the list. Uh, and Arena Williams got that candidate uh, spot. Oh, what's going on? Tell me everything, Annabelle. 
You've got your ear to the ground. Uh, honestly, uh, I, I just can't help but think that when it comes to Louisa, like, like you know, we hear a lot about she's not a team player. Yeah. It's like, well, has the team actually been playing with her? Because she actually seems like a pretty phenomenal team player in terms of, like, maximum impact. Yes. Um, and, uh, it's terrible. and represented a country. Rep- Kelda. Um, double international. Double, double international. Cap. It's terrible the way she's been treated, and she'll be remembered as one of our most effective MPs, I think, mm. and the la- one of our greatest Māori MPs, and 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 certainly of of my generation. Um, I think, but not only effective in terms of being a legislator, if that's the right term, but also like just a really principled person, like her stance on West Papua, mm. on the Uyghurs, yeah. all of that stuff. Yep. She is a yeah. Amazing, yeah. amazingly principled, fearless um, MP who spoke out on those really important issues, yeah. even when her party wouldn't. Like, what, um, a, what a wahine. And, and, and she th- plays in a band with Shane Ritti. <laughs> and, I, and I think that's the tension, isn't it? That you know the yeah I that think she that, will that, always do the right thing even if it's that not the, popular. The euphemism is yeah she's not a team player and you know there's all sorts of ideas about what that might stand in for. But then as far as the public is concerned, the things that she hasn't been a team player on, uh, you know she had a private members bill when Labour was languishing in opposition mm-hmm. about for marriage equality. Mm-hmm. She was encouraged by the leadership of the Labour Party to withdraw that bill because they didn't want to concentrate on what they saw as culture wars or something potentially divisive with within their own communities. Uh, they wanted to focus on the economy or whatever, uh, and she said, "You know, no, I'm. You know, we're carrying it forward." The Prime Minister came out in support of it. Yeah. You know, her, her party obviously fell in behind because it's what they believe in, even yeah. if they found it inconvenient, and that passed. Um, and you know, and and. So as far as the public is concerned, you'd say, well, how you know, how is not being a team player in that? And then, it's, and that, such, a, way, it's such a damaging narrative, eh? and it always gets wheeled out like, oh, they're not a team player or, oh, they're difficult to work with in the office. You see it like rolled out again and again. But here's the thing. National loves working with her. They're mahiing to her. The Greens are. Actually, she was able to play with every team on the paddock, except, it seems, her own. So it seems like it says a lot more about Labour than her. I mean, could you not have just made her the Minister for Sports? The woman's a double cap. Like, at the very least, like, how how politicised can that be? Like, the way they've treated her, I think, is... I mean, I mean, it is incredibly it is disappointing when, when you look at the the intake in for cabinet in mm. 2017 and then 2020. The idea that Lewis Hall would be sort of missing from that broader lineup of you know twenty five, twenty six people once you include outside of cabinet, if you, if you sort of thought that Lewis Hall, who was one of the only people who had been in Parliament for almost a decade, mm. you know when they were elected, mm. it's one of the only people who had ever passed a bill. You know they they came they went in with two people who had ever had been in cabinet, um, and she had plenty of parliamentary experience too. So I mean, on paper. She yep. was like a, a absolute chewing absolute yep. for for a for a cabinet plus, plus you know but, but I plus suppose without, plus without in any way diminishing her personal achievements also a Maori woman queer ticks a lot of boxes mm. that Labour does you know mm. is very conscious about ticking yeah and still didn't make Committed it in. To and, but somebody electorate. made an assessment yeah rightly or wrongly I do not know that while lots of people when you bring them into that room they then you know there's collective responsibility. 
and so then a, a different kind of discipline uh, yeah. follows. Somebody made the yeah, <laughs> assessment that, sh- that, that that wouldn't be the case. Yeah, with I think too. We shouldn't underestimate how toxic professional jealousy can be. I, I mean, the ma- the main thing is like in terms of because I, I got asked, you know, think of radio or something. What's Simon Bridges' legacy? And the thing is, I think we can all agree, Simon Bridges, remarkable sort of personal reinvention. Um, you know, very amiable, sort of affable public figure. Now, um, you know, was certainly a very capable politician. He was he was a pretty solid leader of the opposition. He was a good mid-range minister, but not really any kind of legacy to speak of. And that's the case with most of the people who mm. pass through Parliament's doors. Mm, and the fact that Louisa Wall has, you know, she has a real legacy, mm. uh, you know, even leaving aside marriage equality, which you wouldn't because that would be the first thing you would think of, you know, she has a tangible legacy as a legislator in the New Zealand Parliament and no one's ever going to be able to take that away from her. It does, when you think about it, sound a bit like an entire building collapsing when you lose both the wall and the bridges. <laughs> Great news for me, though. I'm just weeks. like writing up the new list of episodes for the next series of Matangi Dea, like Cyber, oh, yeah. Cyber, wow. Lewis, wow. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's kind of suspicious that yeah. they keep on rolling up. And they both report having got kind of these strange, <laughs> gravelly voiced phone calls in the deep of night. <laughs> I know. <laughs> We're the skeletons. <laughs> Let's talk about the Solomon Islands. Uh, China, we touched on with Louisa Wallen. I mean, this is an interesting area where she was outspoken. You mm. mentioned on the, on the Uyghurs. The, there was a leaked draft defence strategy from the Solomon Islands that emerged this week, which talked about this pact between China and the Solomon Islands, which would see potentially a whole lot of Chinese <coughs> military hardware stacked up just a few thousand miles from Australia. And it feeds into a kind of wider um power struggle in the Pacific. We remember, of course, the Pacific reset when the US announced that they were going to focus more on the region. China has been getting more involved in a range of different ways, economically and strategically, within the Pacific. Uh, the Solomons in 2019, I think, switched there, did that switch of uh, recognising mainland China instead of Taiwan. Um, I, I was in Taiwan for a, a business junket a while ago. Oh, yeah. Uh, ages ago, like 2006, maybe, and we visited. That you know, quite we, a while we visited ago. like the 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 embassy district. Yeah, and you know, it's it's basically just this building, and you go in and and sort of in the reception area where it says, you know, which floor, you know, has the business name of yeah, yeah, yeah. those buildings. It's just got the name of every country with fewer than a thousand inhabitants in it, <laughs> yes, like in right. the entire world. And they're all just in this building, like, and it's just Togo, one, one Murray United who Nations represents and Micronesia, <laughs> like, and, yeah. and they're, they're like, oh, this is, this is, here are the diplomats. As, and, and because, you know, there, there was, at that point there was, before China was really sort of ascendant regionally, mm. and there still is a little bit, you know, this real jostling for diplomatic recognition as Taiwan sort of tried to sort of solidify it's kind of you know a secure place in the international order, um, and 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 you know it started off with a sort of jostling and kind of bidding war between these two countries, and but now of course China is is a, is a world superpower, mm. you know, quite distinct from back then. The Solomon Islands Prime Minister Manasseh Sogavade Annabelle said that criticism of the deal was insulting and was quoted as saying, when a helpless mouse is cornered by vicious cats, it will do anything to survive. There is a sense in which, as far as the Solomon's concerned, 
Ben mentioned a bidding war. If you don't want to have Chinese piling up on your doorstep, Australia and America, their pals, and New Zealand, mm. the West, bid higher. <laughs> exactly. I don't know if you guys heard, but Kevin Rudd did a really interesting interview with um with Kim Hill. With Kim Hill. Wow, that was the amazing. Weekend. The end bit was pretty. Did you oh hear that? My was, God, it was, it was so awkward. Was what just, is that? Was he happen? delivered the whole? The whole interview, he spoke in sentences as if addressing a lecture theatre of 5,000 eager students. In response to every question, he spoke with a monotone, robotic, it was just like that. And then at the end, she goes, she goes, is it true that the ALP uh, rejected your request to stand in a federal federal seat? And he said... It is not for me to say whether, and it went on like that. It was one of those great. It wasn't quite. It was a bit like Kim Hill John Pidge, but it was just incredible listening, where he so answered a different question talkies. about five or six times, told her off for haranguing, for you to harangue me when you know. So how dare you speak to someone? <laughs> Didn't you know I'm a former Prime Minister of Australia and I led a very important think tank here in New York? Sorry, anybody you're saying? No, no, no. It was, I mean, it, it was a. Fa- he thinks he sounded like a lecturer. I actually found it fascinating, but it actually I found the entire. Lecture fascinating, <laughs> but it, it kind of. It, I mean, he reiterated stuff that we've already talked about on here, which is that in the Pacific, Australia and New Zealand, and particularly Australia, have really dropped the ball as being, I guess, sort of senior regional partners to yep. our Pacific neighbours, and um, and. So in the absence of them being good Pacific partners, China, you know, as the superpowers of the world move their chess pieces across the board, like we're seeing in, you know, the Ukraine with Russia, US, all of that sort of stuff. So now China's moving down here and they're being much better regional partners. And it's not about who has the deepest pockets, although Australia has cut back hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in aid. Mm. It's stuff that's as simple as, you know, for the Pacific, you know, security is actually having your island not be underwater in in 10 years' time. Mm. And both Australia and New Zealand just aren't taking those concerns about climate change um, seriously enough, and particularly Australia, who kind of rails against any kind of change, even though they're a significant contributor to, to global warming. And so, you know, if we're to look at how New Zealand has reacted to Ukraine and supporting their their sovereignty to be able to make security decisions for themselves, um, we really have no moral high ground to stand on in terms of the the deal that the Solomons has made with China. We absolutely should not be surprised by it, though, because the, the Chinese influence in the region has been coming uh, happening for a long time. And uh, as you would expect, as the US starts to encircle the Pacific as well, the sad thing is is that Melanesians, Micronesians, and Polynesians are getting wedged between two superpowers. And who knows what that's what that's going to mean in a few years' time? One of the things that is clear, I mean, Penny Henry was quite 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 strong on this on the subject, rather rather than, than shying away from it. And I expect that in this budget upcoming, which we'll talk about more on this podcast in the weeks to come, there will be quite sizable increase in, in defence spending. I mean, we've seen in, in in recent days, New Zealand has contributed, I think, three pairs of gumboots and a bread maker to the to, to the Ukrainian. 
resistance to Russians' invasion, but it is a pretty, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, our, our defense spending is limited. And if we want to, particularly in the Pacific, uh, I, I saw, I saw establish a, establish something that is that are, that are, that can that can provide a serious contribution to those issues that you talk about, Annabelle. Then we're probably going to have to up it. Yeah, and and there's the the ongoing question of you know how much do we contribute to our alliance with Australia? Mm. You know, our only ally. Um, they've often seen us as sort of shirkers, and that they themselves are sort of you know only sort of buying into a Christmas club scheme with the United States. You know, Australia doesn't have the means to defend itself against any serious you know power. Um, Isn't it getting some submarines though? In about seventeen years, yeah. <laughs> if the, if well, the Chinese it's, could just it's wait, screwed the, screwed the French. And just wait, 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 wait. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we not will, yet, con- not yet. We will let's, continue let's our, name, our game of battleship down in seventeen years. Later. <laughs> it's yeah, kind, of, kind of like how the, you know, the Ukraine and Russia were like having diplomatic talks, and while they were going on, oh, like one hundred and fifty thousand troops were sort of massing on the border. You know, mm. um, the yeah, it, it, you know, we we are. Seen as sort of not pulling our weight and, mm. you know, similar discussions, you know, are, are taking place in, in Europe about, you know, whether pe- people are, you know, pulling their weight in, in NATO, you know, and, mm. and putting in. Because, you know, yeah, it is, it, it's been very easy in the last, you know, few, few decades to sort of think, well, these are kind of abstract concerns. And mm. if there's one thing that, um, you know, the, 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 the invasion of Ukraine has shown, it's that, you know, we we still live in the world that has existed for a long time, mm-hmm. yeah. which is one where you know conflict between states is not uh, unavoidable. Or, uh, sorry, no, it's not. Oh shit! I sound like a in the loop. That's what Kevin Rudd. Neither of foreseeable nor no. What I mean is, you know, like co- conflict is not consigned to the dustbin of history, right? Change <laughs> with continuity. Yeah. <laughs> 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 There's, uh, there's also the um... and and look and remember you know the, our our concerns in the Pacific, you know we have the world's was largest exclusive economic zone. Uh, China, you know one one of the the particular things um, identified by uh, the white paper by our defence force was you know food security s- supplies mm-hmm. for uh, unnamed powers that had. Values that mm. were not con- consonant with the West's, mm. <laughs> um, you know, and and in terms of you know even patrolling our fishing areas, you know, the, the, these are the sorts of things where you know, and, and, and as you see overseas, you know, we have international law, but it's not, you know, international law isn't the same as going to the disputes tribunal and getting a ruling, right? You know, there, there's a lot of brinksmanship, there's a lot of, you know, nudging right up to the point, uh, you know, at which. To, at which point sometimes, you know, things will then become, you know, kind of get the momentum of their own. And so, you know, if we want to defend our interests, you know, in as broad a sense as that means, you know, uh, you know, we do need to get more serious about defence. I think too one of the things is that we've kind of got short memories and an overdeveloped sense of security, like, oh, we're way down here at the bottom of the world, no one cares, we're not important. But like the Pacific Theatre in World War Two was literally drenched in blood. And in the Solomons, it's literally like a a graveyard of warships and fighter planes and all of that sort of stuff. So you can understand why it's, for those who don't have short memories, when they see these 
superpowers taking all of these super aggressive pa- poses against each other, why well, you would feel like you need a little bit of total. You might need to like shore yourself up. And if we, if we need to repeat New Zealand's greatest military victory, the conquest of German Samoa in 1914. <laughs> Uh, before we, uh, <laughs> we, we, we digress pulled, pulled too far into the harbour, <laughs> changed the flag. And <laughs> thank you very much, here. Thank you, Annabelle. <laughs> thank you, Ben. Thank you, listeners. Kia ora e te iwi. Te Aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.